Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Let me try that again. <laughs> I couldn't remember what the E was. Enemies. No. No, everything. It's everything. Uh, it's, it's everything? Yeah. God, what an asshole. <laughs> Live from Morden Kanan's Magnificent Mansion in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Yishin. And welcome to episode 147 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're reviewing the newest release for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes. We'll walk you through it cover to cover and let you know whether it's worth adding to your collection. So in keeping with recent tradition for all D&D book reviews, we will not be visit, revisiting the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign nor completing a character creation forge. But they'll be back next week. And since it's anime, no one will miss it. <laughs> oh, we are definitely doing uh, an extra a makeup. One. Yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> all right, fine. <laughs> Don't worry. We also just got back from a weekend away upstate for Thrillicon 2. Don't say it. No boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things happened. Uh, we got to know ourselves maybe a little too well, but more on that next week. Yeah, we'll have some uh, some fun tales of the Mirrors RPG, Birthright, and probably going to skip the Rogue Trader update. Um, not all those tales are fun, at least not for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right, so here we are, Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes. This is the fourth new RPG sourcebook from Wizards of the Coast for 5th edition D&D. The first one was Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide back in 2015. We have a full review of that. I think it's episode 16. Uh, It was a campaign book set in the Forgotten Realms. The second one the year after was Volo's Guide to Monsters, which was a monster manual focused on the Forgotten Realms. And that was followed by last year's Xanathar's Guide to Everything, which presented new player options, including dozens of new subclasses, and then a large DM section with additional tips and tricks, advice, that sort of thing at the end. So like Xanathar's, Tome of Foes is a hybrid book. It's split between multiple topics. So first there's lore about different conflicts in the multiverse, and then a little bit more than half the book is a new bestiary with stats for about 140 new monsters, including very high-level creatures. Now this sort of breaks the publishing rhythm that Wizards has set forth, right? Because we've been getting these new books in the fall, and now here we are in May when we're usually supposed to get uh, an adventure, yeah? Mm Mm-hmm. And they're about to announce their new adventure uh, with a really, really large set in L.A. and a live stream, apparently. All right. So it, maybe this isn't throwing off the rhythm all that much. They're just swapping the the books that are coming out, yeah. you think? Yep. All right. Well, I'm glad we've got this one right now. First off, though, uh, Shane, who the hell is Morden Kanan? So Morden Kanan was the most powerful wizard in Greyhawk, which, of course, was Gary Gygax's uh, D&D setting. Uh, and it was created by Gary because he was tired of running games and wanted to finally play. Yeah, I think Morden Kanan is a portmanteau of like two famous Norse heroes. I don't know which ones. Nah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. So he led a council of powerful adventurers and wizards, those types of people, called the Circle of Eight, which actually had nine members, um, which was obsessed with preserving the balance. Um, which meant that, you know, good could never outweigh evil. Evil could never outweigh good. Everything kind of had to remain in harmony in order for the world to be preserved. 
Um, so they always took the opposite side of the most powerful. Yeah, sometimes that meant that they did not so very nice things because good was winning. Right. He also is best known probably for creating many iconic spells in D&D. Many of the spells in the game are named after some of these original adventurers that Gygax and his friends had created as their PCs. Big B, Drawmage, Mordenkainen. Rary. Odaluke. Yeah, all those dudes. I think pretty much exclusively dudes. Right. Yeah. 1974. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Morden uh he has Morden Kanan's sword, Morden Kanan's magnificent mansion, private, private sanctum, sanctum, disjunction. So the disjunction, yeah, we haven't seen the disjunction since third edition. Well, but... for good reasons. <laughs> well, yes, it and a mass version of it uh, played a central role in the Morning Glory campaign that is recapped in previous episodes. So it has a special place in my heart because it ruins things. Yep. So anyway, uh, the the framing device kind of laid out in two panels in the first page of the book is that uh, Morden Kanan uh, created this book by narrating it to his assistant, Bigby, who uh, transcribed it all um, with his thoughts and sort of outlining his documentation of his philosophy of the balance. Um, this was then... Uh, lost from his possession and recovered by a Yugoloth who was hired by another of Mordenkainen's assistants um, and then sort of published because it was important to record the origin of the balance. And there you go. And just like the previous books, there are small little sidebars in handwritten script that is supposed to be the voice of Mordenkainen. I actually like this voice much more than in the previous books. Like he's, I find Mordenkainen much less annoying than, say, like Xanathar. Xanathar was the worst. Yeah, he really was. Yeah, but Morden Kanan is fine. And uh, and occasionally even very amusing. Yeah. So speaking of conflict, actually, Shane, you can get this book with two different covers. You can. Um, this is the... So this has been the trend um, since Sword Coast Adventures Guide. That was the first book that, that they released. It didn't have a double cover, but um, ever since, you've been able to get these expansion books with a special edition hobby store cover and the normal edition sort of like Amazon cover, right? So the the normal cover matches the rest of the 5e line, has the same art style, kind of looks like a D&D book. The special edition cover has been a different material. It's had sort of a like a metallic sheen to it. Uh, previously, it was line art by Hydro 78. Four, yeah, one of those. 74, 76, Soldier 76. Anyway. Um, 8675309. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this one is the special edition cover. It's the same material, so that same kind of soft material. Um, same kind of gold embossment, you know, shiny metallic embossment. But now it looks like the cover of, like, a graphic novel or a comic book. When I actually, like, dropped this off for you, like, you you weren't here. So I, like, left it with the doorman. And he was like, oh, is this a comic book? And I was like, yes. And then I left. Mm -hmm. I was very happy. I sat on a in a public place and read this book <laughs> openly for the first time. It it it's a great cover, actually. Like I really like it. Um, and and for that reason, like it doesn't look like a D and D book, uh, which seems like a bad choice by Wizards of the Coast. They're not that great at branding. You should you should advertise your brand. That's sort of the point. Yeah, or at least say like as seen on Stranger Things, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into this actual book. Chapter one, probably the most famous conflict in all of D&D and one of my favorites, The Blood War. I have to say, there, 
there's not all that much new information about the Blood War if you are well steeped in D&D lore. However, it makes a comeback with a vengeance because in fourth edition, it was sort of like it was over. It had been solved and like Asmodeus was a like an actual god now. And I hated that. I love that the only reason the entire multiverse is not overrun with horrible like hordes of demons and devils is that they hate each other more than they hate us. Right. <laughs> it's that demons are attacking the devils because they're the closest ones there. <laughs> Thank goodness. Uh, I hate good, but I hate law more. Right. <laughs> Your kind of evil is wrong. So this section sort of explains the uh, tactics of either side in the blood war sort of posits some ideas of why the blood lord the blood war started in the first place and and basically paints asmodeus's point of view as the one that sort of protects the rest of the multiverse right the idea that um, the devils have to be lawful and carefully ordered and have to tempt mortal souls into their service so that they can continue to fight the blood war yeah you know who is the most uh, selfless creature in all of creation Asmodeus. Well, Primus did not agree with that. <laughs> but look. But he did not agree with <laughs> that's, that either. That's correct. <laughs> uh, so it gives you a background on all of the nine archdevils, the ones who rule each of the nine layers of hell. Uh, there's also some interesting anecdotes about, you know, how they got there or, you know, recent history or what their personality is like. And I think the only like sort of big change, the only new thing that people might not recognize is that the first layer of hell, Avernus, where most of the fighting takes place, is not is no longer ruled by Bell, but is instead ruled by a fallen angel, Zariel. Yeah, who is like an embedded reporter from the <laughs> from Mount Celestia who <laughs> fell. It's great. Yes. She was supposed to watch, and she just got really into it. She got really mad that Mount Celestia wouldn't get involved in the blood war. So, so she rushed the field. Yeah. <laughs> and then stayed. I like that Bell is still serving underneath her, but, like, is just waiting for her to overextend so he can take his job back. Oh, yeah. He's like, nah, I'm not plotting. Yeah. I'm just waiting. <laughs> and I love that there are little tidbits that um, sort of make sense to, I don't know, maybe the optimizer in me or the type of person who likes to match up mechanics with lore like why is it that the devils always fight on Avernus that doesn't make any sense because if they die there they die forever well yeah but that means that they also get to keep all the gear Mm -hmm. because if they died somewhere else their bodies would disappear they'd show up back uh, in the nine hells but they'd lose all the gear right and Asmodeus is like "Uh, gear's more important to me than the devils (laughs) we can always get more souls (laughs) yeah I also like the little anecdote about the uh, the naming conventions for the different legions of hell and like how they adopted names to as as honorifics of their legion. Oh yeah, like basically like the Scrub Legion. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then you move on up. Yeah, like depending on on how honored your your uh, class of devil is. Yeah, there's like bump in the road. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> acceptable losses. Right. <laughs> for the dreg legions. Right. <laughs> And then, like, the, the sword legions are, like, hanging blade, flawless execution, like, fatality. <laughs> right. Toasty! <laughs> we get a pretty typical expl- explanation of the devilish hierarchy, you know, how souls show up and they're basically the lowest form of scum devil lemurs. And if they can actually survive and, you know, rack up kills and 
Uh, being a devil in the nine hells is kind of like playing a video game with your soul, where like everything you do is counted and accrued, and mm-hmm. then eventually, if you have enough kills or enough like honor, then you mutate into the next form of devil right. above you. And then we get our first bit of mechanics in this book. Uh, it details diabolical cults that uh, mortals might be a part of. And there's one for every ruler of each of the layers of hell, plus Garion, who was displaced by Levistus. So we get 10 cults. And they are bits of stat block that you can append to the stat block of an NPC who worships this particular archdevil. So it comes with a description of some of the goals they might have. Uh, it describes what a typical follower might look like or be or what station they might have in their life. And it gives a list of signature spells. So if that uh, NPC has any spells, you can go ahead and just swap some out if you want to make them feel much more like they are a servant of this particular archdevil. It's not going to make them more powerful. It'll just be a lot more flavorful. Mm-hmm. Each cult also offers a boon, which is like one or two bonus abilities. They're things like once per day, reduce uh, damage from an attack to zero and teleport away. So they're actually pretty useful. Um, You don't get any information on how it would affect a creature's challenge rating, unfortunately. But my guess is that it should affect it in some way. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of look at it and and eyeball it. Um, But they do kind of vary in power a little bit it looks like they tried to balance out the whole package so you'll get like one weak ability that's almost ribbon and then you'll get a slightly stronger one and then like another cult will just have one strong ability Mm -hmm. i will say at least the boons and these traits like seem to be visible right like they're the type of thing that will is likely to come up in a combat because they're mostly combat abilities so like at least you'll have a reason to use them that doesn't invalidate their other stat block so it's things like they can manipulate initiative order or like you said that escape ability which are likely to just trigger they're not going to be like oh i have to waste an action which i would have spent doing the thing that's core to my character yeah yeah definitely they're often things that um are reactions to other things that are happening in combat Mm mm-hmm then it gives alternate sub-races for tieflings. Yay! Uh, we've already seen these because these were a uh, uh, unearthed arcana. Yeah, I mean, so officially now that these are in a book, tieflings are definitively the most customizable race in 5th edition. I mean, we already had normal tieflings, and then we have the feral tiefling, which gives you plus two dex instead of plus two charisma. All of these, uh, and there are, what, eight of them? One sub-race for each Archdevil, nine of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, All of these have plus two charisma and then plus one to a different stat. But every one of the other five stats is covered. So now, depending on which Archdevil your tiefling is affiliated with, um, you've got plus two charisma and plus one to whatever stat you want. Yay! I mean, Glacia looks pretty broken. You get... Uh, charisma and dex and then you also gain the spells minor illusion disguise self and oh invisibility but it's thematic and also super strong (laughs) (laughs) so that's the pattern these follow is you also swap out your infernal legacy trait which is you know cantrip um spell once per day at third level spell once per day at fifth level Uh, they're just 
different. Uh, they seem to be along the same level of spell, right? I think it's yeah, it's cantrip, uh, cantrip first and second. If you are the PHP tiefling, then you are um, not descended from, but you are affiliated with Asmodeus, right? All right, then we get some random tables. The, there's the typical ideals, bonds, flaws, and personality traits, but you do get some nice devil honorifics. Pretty typical devil stuff. I don't know. Some of them are, are pretty funny, like the Stoic. It's not really a word I typically associate with devils. Vainglorious the Stoic. Right. Um, but I, the the ideals, bonds, and flaws are also also interesting because they're they're cast from the perspective of a devil. So like a flaw for a devil is something like my frustration boils over into violence. Like that's a, that's not because violence is bad. It's because that's chaotic. <laughs> like you have, you have, uh, you have failed to uphold your duty to not be violent unnecessarily. I should be able to control that. Or like I put the minimum effort possible into anything that isn't my own idea. <laughs> Perfect. I will meet the letter of the law. Right. I don't know if that's a flaw. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then part two of this chapter is the demons. There's a nice bit that I actually hadn't heard of before on there's lore on demonic incursions, how the abyss slowly seeps into different worlds on the material plane and how it can take, you know, months, years, or even centuries for an area to become tainted enough that the veil actually breaks and the abyss just pours out into the material and then your whole world is screwed. Right. Whereas if it stopped ahead of time, then you know, that this area is just tainted for a century or so. That's not so bad. Yeah, you can that'll rub out. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a nice easy plot point for any kind of game you want to run. Hey, stop this demonic incursion. Even devils would help you. It, it also gives a reason for demonic cults to exist. Right. Oh, right, they have an end game, right? Not like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, like, my goal is to be eaten by my overlord. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> You're dumb. <laughs> but, hey, the demons will come and they will destroy you, and then we will rule. Yeah, you probably will rule. Right. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> it then goes through and covers uh, each of the demon lords and their cultists sort of in a... A fittingly less structured fact fashion than the devils. Yeah, you get a lot of information here that you probably already had some of if you own Rage of Demons, the Rage of Demons uh, adventure path. Um, we'll kind of get in more into that later because there is a fair amount of overlap. Then you've got a section on demonic boons. These are akin to the diabolical cults, uh, except mechanically they're a bit different. Um, each of them gives an ability score adjustment that is typically up to a plus four bonus to two different stats or like sometimes even up to a plus eight and some of them also give penalties to, to other stats at the same time uh, these are super swingy and these are very clearly for monsters and NPCs it says it right there in the text oh yeah do not give these to your players and don't let, don't let them have it keep it away uh, just like Diabolical Cults, there are signature spells, and then you also get uh, bonus abilities. Uh, at first glance, maybe? No, actually, no. I was going to say at first glance, it seems like some of these are stronger, but no. Some of them are definitely weaker, and some seem potentially stronger, so I think it's just more random. Like, Fraz or Blue, um, you get advantage on insight and perception checks, and you can see hidden creatures. 
cool. That's it. Yeah, but uh, Jweeblex gets a plus eight bonus to Constitution and an equal penalty to Charisma, Intelligence, and Wisdom. I think it's worth it. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> and you're an ooze. You, I mean, you become an ooze. Yeah, yeah liquid movement <laughs> and slimy organs. I'm down. Right. <laughs> Why do I want Jubilex to take over our whole planet? Slimy organs, baby. All right. In the same way, we get Cambion alternate abilities uh, for Cambions who are part demon, and then more random tables. But these include things like unusual demon features, like an endlessly mumbling second mouth. I kind of love some of these. An ever open extra eye. Oh, I bleed wasps. Yeah. <laughs> oh, see, I like thick lead skull. You're immune to telepathy. <laughs> <laughs> I like head hands. The demon has heads where it should have hands. <laughs> I mean, vestigial demon is fun, too. A miniature vestigial twin of the demon grows from its body. <laughs> so it can't be blind, deaf, and or stunned. Oh, that's what Demogorgon has. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are also random tables for fiendish cults that cover goals, resources, organization, and, oh, your cult hardship. Yeah, it's so hard being a cult. Racked with infighting. No. Mm. No. It would be so hard if your cult were a disposable pawn manipulated by its master. Good thing it isn't. That's that's what makes a cult, right? <laughs> Grass would never do that to us. <laughs> Literally the definition of a cult. <laughs> okay, so moving on, chapter two covers elves. Um, and there are a lot of elf subraces, and none of them get along. Yeah, it, this chapter goes through the history that you probably already know, the split between Corlon and Lolf. Uh, I think it's a slightly different, it's a 5e variation on the history of the elves and how Lolf betrayed Corlon. And, right. You know, I like it. It's fine. I do really enjoy that the, you know, how do elves live section of this chapter really focuses on what is it like to live a very long time. Um, there's a whole section on cultural melancholy. You know, we feel sad all the time because we are trapped in these forms. Um, elf souls apparently are always reincarnated into new elves. Um, you always feel old. They're literally old souls. Uh, then it talks a little bit about elven magic, um, which is sort of a, a long-running theme of elves is that they have magic that other mortals don't, right? So it talks about mythals, a word that constantly sounds like you're mispronouncing it. <laughs> magic mythals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then uh, they also cover Blade Song, which of course is uh, the signature ability of the Blade Singer from Sword Coast Adventures Guide. And of course, both of these things feature prominently in the Forgotten Realms, and that's the only magic they talk about. Right. Then there's the Seldarine. Yeah, each of the like race sections typically talks about the religion. It lays out the pantheons. It gives you, you know, that little chart about uh, the name of the god and what their domains are and what's their um, symbol and, and what is their alignment. And, and here's the first one you get, the Seldarine. So Corallon and Hanali Salani and Sahanin and etc. etc. Yeah, this is a very dense section of text. Yeah, I actually didn't know that there were this many elven gods. Yeah, read it if you have to. <laughs> like, or read your god section. Yeah. <laughs> um, then it moves on to the Eladrin and the Feywild, so um, kind of leading into the history of the elves as Fey, 
and the Eladrin who have sort of not moved on from that history. That's a relatively short section because then we dive into the drow. There's a lot of drow in this book. This is a very drow heavy book. Oh yeah. Yeah, it ties uh ties very nicely with uh, you know, the demons. Yeah. And if you've read any like Drizzt Dorden books, you basically understand most of this stuff. Uh, but you know, it goes into what's it like to be a servant of Lolth who sucks. And, you know, if your entire society is based on, like, murder and assassination and poisoning people and also spiders, what might things be like? And, of course, you get a religion section, the Dark Seldarine, which I guess the most interesting part of that to me is Elistrei, who is the good one, which, let's be honest, most of the, like, there's there's a lot on drow renegades and... um you know, what is it like to not want to be around the drow? And why might you not be living in a drow society? Right. Then it moves on to the other dark elves, the Shadar Kai, which uh, I think is the first time it's been mentioned in 5th edition. Um, it's basically the Raven Queen servant elves. So they've been twisted by death rather than spider killing. Um, it comes with some artwork that uh, is very reminiscent of mid-90s Vampire the Masquerade. Yeah, or like Rob Zombie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it very much has like a vampire feel to it, frankly. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a much darker version of the Raven Queen than I think we've gotten before because she was created for 4th edition. And initially, she was like a, a neutral goddess of death who you know wasn't about killing things she had actually taken out she had like dated and then murdered the old god of death who was really about like let's spread death and she was just like let's maintain the veil between life and death this raven queen um totally went insane during a magic ritual and like now she's like a broken psyche who can't really help but bleed emotions out into things in the shadow fell and so now it's filled with despair so hey now here are the shadow guy who are super sad and full of piercings. It does talk a little bit about what it's like to enter the Shadowfell and to um, quest to the Fortress of Memories, which I thought was really interesting because it it sort of explains how you integrate the Raven Queen into a campaign without having to meet the Raven Queen, right? Yeah, she has goals. She has stuff that she wants. And, but she also has experiences that, like she can relate to you through the Fortress of Memories. Memories (laughs) of additions we left behind. All right, then we get some mechanics. We get elf subraces. New, new elf subraces? Yeah, I guess officially new. Eladrin, Sea Elves, and the Shadar Kai. So if you follow Unearthed Arcana, you will have seen that Aladrin were published earlier, they get a relatively substantial update. So all Aladrin as a subrace get plus one to charisma and they have the face step ability. Once every short rest, they can teleport 30 feet. Um, gone is the ability to swap out cantrips. You don't get an extra cantrip anymore. Instead, at level three, you get an additional effect on your face step. Um, you know, you may cause a bit of damage when you arrive, or you may attempt to charm some people when or, you also arrive. Yeah, so it's basically when you face step, you either uh, charm if you're autumn, frighten if you're winter, burn them if you're summer, 
Or bring somebody with you if you're spring. So you're always going to be spring. You're going to be spring. Why would you not do that? Just be spring. But spring is not my color. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I've it's... been told I'm in autumn. Look, I don't look good in Lily Pulitzer. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to bring someone with me. Uh, it also give us, gives us stats for the sea elf. So another aquatic race, uh, which is nice to see. Yeah, I don't think we've seen any sort of CLs before or even tests for them. Right. And they're fine. You get a plus one con. Uh, swim speed, water breathing, and you can speak with fish. So we are rebuilding our Aquaman. Yeah, Aquaman is now a CL. <laughs> um, there's a brief sidebar about the Sahaguin. Who should all die. And then last we get the Shadarkai, which are uh, fine. <laughs> they they kind of get an a. Uh, an improved teleport, an improved Misty step. Although it's only once per long rest, not short rest. So, eh. But they do resist necrotic, which is much more useful than, you know, the comparative resist radiant that, like, uh, Asamar get. I guess it, they kind of need it living in the shadow fell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then when they use their, uh, when they use their teleport, they also gain uh, resistance to all damage. We've got random tables, trinkets, uh, adventure hooks, both for drow and for non-drow. And like I said, the drow adventure hooks are very much weighted toward, why did I leave? Right. Um, and then you get a house specialty as uh, as a drow as well. All right, on to chapter three. Another problem in the family. Dwarves and Durgar. Dwergar, how do you say that? Yeah, let's go with Dwergar. I like that too. There's a history of the conflict, and it's actually kind of sad. The Dwergar, very misunderstood, in fact. And if the dwarves hadn't been so stuck up about things, then maybe none of this would have happened. Mm-hmm. At least, you know, that's that's how I feel. I mean, at least that's the way Morty Caden feels. He wouldn't lie to me. Morty wouldn't lie to me. All right, so this chapter is divided into two sections. Dwarves first, a nice bit on family life and philosophy. You know, what is it like to live underground and to have very close family ties? Um, the philosophy of, like, uh, you know, being tied to your clan. Yeah, I like this includes a, uh, a throwaway quote from a dwarf you may remember from prior editions. Tordek. The fighter. Then it gives you a section of uh, Dwarves of the Multiverse, so it covers the distinctions between Dwarves and Greyhawk versus Forgotten Realms versus Dragonlance. And it goes through the traditional enemies of Dwarves. How do Dwarves fight and relate to dragons and giants? What happens when your clan collapses? Hey friend, has your clan collapsed? Are you feeling all alone? Join the Dwergar. And then a nice bit on Dwarven Adventurers. A lot of these uh, chapters have a section on what it's like to be an adventurer, what causes you to be an adventurer, how do you relate to the the outside world, and, you know, while you're out traipsing and, and gathering XP and loot. And, of course, a big old section on religion. Right. So I am not familiar enough with Greyhawk or Forgotten Realms in their entirety to know if this is true, but there is a reference here... Uh, in one of the quotes to the five peaks, which means it could be the first fifth edition birthright reference that we've ever seen. I'm extraordinarily skeptical, but also very hopeful. Yeah, I assume that means I don't know all of the lore of <laughs> Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms, but I would enjoy if that were true. Yeah, someone's going to be like, oh, that's an um. Right. 
I mean, the, this dwarf section is fine, right? Like, none of the information is bad. The um, the idea of, like, clans collapsing, I think, is one that hasn't really been broached in any um, appreciable way prior. So that was interesting to read. But otherwise, like, it's dwarves. You know dwarves. Like, everyone knows about dwarves. You skip this section, right? Now, the Dwergar section is a little bit more interesting, I think, at least for me, because I know very little about them coming in. Well, that's why you don't understand them. <laughs> right. That they're terribly misunderstood. The Dwergar are one of three races in this book who were enslaved by mind flayers. <laughs> it's a theme. All good. Right. Why are people evil? Oh, right. Enslaved by mind flayers. Uh, and they were freed by Laudugwer. Yeah, they don't really get that many gods. It's him and Deep Dwera. So the story is basically this uh, Laudugwer uh, quest through the Nine Hells to bring them glory and then like they found their religion based on that yeah how did we escape the mind flayers we make a pact with asmodeus but that doesn't make us evil hey hey where are you regular dwarves going i don't what what what's the problem yeah and he basically like he outwits asmodeus by just being like too stubborn to say anything yeah like If I just say nothing, he can't trick me. Great. Uh, It gives an explanation for why the Dwergar are so um, stoic and also kind kind of like, why are they so evil? It's because that was bred slash experimented out of them by the mind flayers. Yeah. And and also like they kind of don't have a choice in the matter, right? Because of the deal they made with Asmodeus. Mm -hmm. So in a way, they're kind of tragic victims really of circumstance rather than necessarily like evil anti-dwarves don't let more in here say that well i know talks a bit about their relationship to psionics uh yet another weapon that they forge uh and then it gives the details on the dwergar subrace which i think is exactly the same as you get in sword coast adventurer's guide and then like everything else it ends with some random tables yeah, some easy ways to build a dwarven clan uh, and some story hooks and then separate tables for Dwergar. Uh, what does your group look like? Why are you out here raiding? So then we move on to the section that I know you were most anticipating, the Gith. I always liked Githzerai, but that's because of my affinity for Planescape Torment uh, and the Githzerai... NPC that you can bring along with you, mm-hmm. but also the Githyanki are terrifying. Yeah. So first off, it starts with Githyanki, who are the lawful evil raiders in the astral sea, and I I really liked how so it gave you it gives you history, and then it explains what life and society is like uh, being raiders, but how that is affected by living on the astral plane where time doesn't pass, so you don't age. Right. And of course, you can't like have children. So they actually have to retreat to the material plane, uh, lay clutches of eggs, and then only stay for a little while. Otherwise, they age too rapidly. Like, time catches up with them. And then, like, they pop back to the astral and rotate out caretakers. So, like, there's not really a concept of family. Right. Yeah, it's like it's a rotating cast of characters taking care of you when they can afford to age a bit. Yeah, it goes into uh, who the Lich Queen is. Spoiler alert, she's not very nice. No. Uh, she rules with an iron claw, I guess. Mm-hmm. Skeletal hand. 
it it's a nice sort of like behind the scenes look at okay why did they get the yankee raid uh it's because the lich queen needs to keep them occupied yeah <laughs> like they already kind of accomplished what she said that they would accomplish and now she's got a lot of violent people with nothing to do yeah it's like a idle hands of the devil's play thing yeah so she's like mm, i don't know why don't you go like get me some loot and kill some people right <laughs> Um, speaking of loot, it does it does get into um, some cool loot uh, overall. Like it, it talks about the silver sword, which is a just a plus three legendary great sword. Yeah, in order to attune to it, you've got to have uh, any kind of psionic ability. Fortunately, there are multiple uh, races in this book that do have that naturally. Um, it, it gives advantage on intelligence, wisdom, and charisma saving throws while you're holding it, and you're just straight up immune to charm, and you've got resistance to psychic damage. I also love that when you crit, uh, you can sever the silver cord of someone in the astral, which is very likely if you're a Githyanki and you're fighting an adventurer. And of course, if you sever someone's silver cord, they just die. Right. <laughs> So, if you're astral projecting and you see Geth Yankee and they've got a silver sword, you run. better run. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like how that makes them really dangerous, um, but only to people who shouldn't be there. Like, if you actually get there some other way through a portal, you're all right. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, you did this the right way. Yeah, but but we hunt tourists. Like, it's going <laughs> out of style. Then it gives us stats for their vehicles. Um, so, the uh, the ships that they use to sail the astral sea. And it tells a bit about Tunarath, which is their city on the astral that is both the home of the Lich Queen and, very coolly, built on a dead god. Or, like, most of a dead god, because, like, he doesn't have any legs anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Something smashed the legs of a dead god apart. All right, next up, the Githzerai, who are almost kind of like the, the twin race of the Githyanki. And we'll see that, you know, when we actually get to stats... The way they decided to stat them out is it's just a straight up Gith race and Gith Yankee and Gith Zerai are subclasses, which I really like because it really drives home the point that like they're two they're two sides of the same coin. Right. So the Gith Zerai live in limbo. Like the plane of limbo. Which is, as its name implies, in limbo, it is a plane of chaos. So that must mean that the Gith Zerai are very chaotic. Incorrect. They are lawful. What? Why would they even live there? Uh, I mean, where better to sharpen your uh, understanding of law than in a sea of chaos? Ah, I see. Yes, they are so good at this that they can use the raw chaos stuff of Limbo as a material and form, for example, fortresses out of it. So it talks a little bit about how their society is structured, the idea of their anarchs that sort of lead them. Anarchs, they lead the forces of chaos against the Imperium. Uh, yes, for the Dark Elder. <laughs> the Trikari now. And there's honestly not a ton of new information that like we haven't seen before. There's an interesting little tidbit about how the adamantine fortresses, the adamantine citadels, show up on the material plane uh, when the Gith are hunting mind flayers, and they just wreck everything around them because real space does not like limbo. Yeah, yeah, as it turns out. <laughs> And then we've got the mechanical uh, subclasses, the the race Gith and the Gith Yankee and Gith Sarai subraces. I think these are exactly the same as the Unearth Arcana that was released. Our uh, verdict was that these were actually pretty nicely built. I don't know, but I think this might be the first 
race where the base race gives you a plus one to an ability stat and the sub races give you a plus two yeah and and that makes sense because it's like there's a greater differentiation between the psionic ones and the rating ones right no they're all psionic well yeah but like the the gith yankee aren't like devoted to using psionics to preserve their existence right they're they're more barbaric raiders like the gith zarai are the ones who are constantly channeling psionic energy to keep themselves alive in limbo Mm -hmm. so as a gith you're gonna get plus one to your intelligence you know because you're psionic and then that's really about it most of your abilities come from your sub race and gith yankee get plus two to strength um they get a skill proficiency and a language Normally, I don't care at all for um, additional like weapon proficiencies, and they get those, but they also get light and medium armor, which is actually really great, especially if you're going to be, you know, like not a fighter. Right. And it also reflects like they use psionics, not magic. So why would they care about wearing armor? It wouldn't hold them back in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, they get Mage Hand and then, you know, Jump and Misty Step at higher levels. The Githzerai, on the other hand, plus two to Wisdom, a better version of Fey Ancestry, where they've got Advantage versus Charm and Frightened. Uh, And then they also get Mage Hand and then a couple of other spells as well. Yeah, they get Shield, which is super good. Super good. And then they get Detect Thoughts, which is nice and flavorful. And also, like, not shabby. (laughs) Yeah, it's certainly not a bad spell, but, like, it could have been a horrible spell, and I would have been like, yeah, I'll take it for Shield. Yeah, right. So I also like in the margin for this one, there's a note from Morning Kanan that mentions that when he studied uh, with the Githzerai, that their adamantine citadels inspired one of his spells. Which one do you think? Is that Private Sanctum? I, I figured it would be Magnificent Mansion, but but either way, right? Like, it's kind of a cool throwback to the fact that his name is on some stuff. Yeah. We get random tables. Uh, of course, we get some names, male and female Gith Yankee and uh, Githzerai names because... We didn't get those in uh, the last book, right. the 19 pages of names. Well, because they didn't exist yet, but yeah, fair. Um, then there's also random tables to um, define Githyanki rating parties. I really like these tables here. So, you know, what does my rating party consist of? And great, you roll on the random tables. However, you always roll for whether or not you have young red dragons as mounts. I like that. Yeah, it's like roll a d6. On a six, you have one d3 dragons. Yeah, we didn't we didn't really get into detail of what a uh, what a, a an astral vehicle looks like, but also they could just have red dragons. Yeah. <laughs> All right, then we get to sort of a strange chapter in this book, chapter five, halflings and gnomes, and it lampshades the existence of this chapter by saying, you know, the rest of this book is about conflicts. Halflings and gnomes don't really have them; they keep their heads down. Right. But hey, they're here. So let's learn us about some halflings. Yeah, so if you don't feel like you know enough about halflings from, um, you know, Tolkien, they talk a little bit about life and their superstitions. Oh, man, there is a six-stanza poem. Yeah, yes, there is. <laughs> it's Tom Bombadil all over again. Uh, then there's um, a brief section on religion and then an explanation of why halflings become adventurers because, frankly... Why do they ever leave their holes? Yeah, that's a good point. There's um, there's a lot of asides here from Morden Kanan, mostly making fun of gnomes and halflings for being frustrating. <laughs> yeah, this is actually him at his finest. 
right? Uh, you know, the the book text is like, ah, oh, here are these all, all these wonderful things about halflings. And Morden Kanan is like, they're useless. Just ignore them. They've never done anything good for anyone. They have a reputation as thieves. It is well-deserved. <laughs> and you know what? He's probably spent a lot of time on Kryn. Yeah, no, that checks out. <laughs> Uh, then gnomes if it seems like we're moving quickly through this chapter it's because it's just it's a lot of lore that you already know or is fleshed out in a way that like unless you're playing a very dedicated halfling character who actually is still really close to their home you don't need now the interesting part of the gnome section for me is that it actually mentions artificers by name Mm -hmm. uh, which we still don't have an artificer class in fifth edition um, so it kind of lamely mentions that you can use Anathar's Guide's common magic items to, you know, replicate that kind of effect, but it's a little disappointing. Yeah. The layout of this section of the chapter is also a little strange because there are multiple kinds of halflings. Um, there are, you know, halfling subraces, but those aren't really uh, laid out in this chapter. But this section is divided into rock gnomes, forest gnomes, and deep gnomes, very specifically. And then it reprints the uh, deep gnome, the Sverf Neblin subclass, uh, sorry, subrace uh, traits, which I believe is exactly the same as the one set out in Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. You also get uh, some details about gnome religion. And again, why would they leave? Why do they leave their holes? And then like everything else, it ends with some random tables. This one covers personality traits, ideals, bonds, flaws, your, you know, basic... Uh, basic character creation tables all right so that's it for the first part of the book Uh, next up is the bestiary but first off so shane how useful did you find the first half of the book uh so i really like the devils and demons conflict so i found that interesting um i'm not as well steeped in DD lore so i learned some things about it um so i really like the blood war um i was less crazy on the dwarves elves halflings and gnomes but overall i mean i like this section um i felt like this was a good dm section it gave good good background and good inspiration for you know basing a campaign or maybe like basing an arc yeah i think if you've been playing DD since like 1986 there's going to be very little that's new in this for you but also it's the fifth edition of the game you know and i think for 5e this is the first time a lot of this information has appeared in print and there are a ton of new people to the game and this lays out a lot of that information in an interesting format like i i was interested reading this even if i was like oh yeah i already know this or i recognize this like it's well written um it's it's nicely laid out it was it was a fun read but probably only about two-thirds of it was was useful that's fair. Uh, I, I will say the the sections that that I liked also did a really good job of leaving open ended questions. A lot of times about origin, things like that, like how did this conflict start, where is this conflict headed, those types of things that make it more useful, right? Because they they create questions canonically that allow your DM to answer without invalidating the lore that's in the book, mm-hmm. which I, I think is a very smart design. I think all source books should do that. So I, I saw that there, which makes everything more applicable, I think. Yeah, I think these sections are not quite up to the breakout sections in Volo's Guide to Monsters. 
but those I think set a very high bar, like the yeah, whole chapter yeah. on hags. That that section was immediately more actionable as a DM. Mm-hmm. This is much more background. Yeah, it's like the like half a page on like playing a particular kind of race that you get in the PHB, but blown out to like eight pages. Right. All right, but if you're buying this book, you're probably buying it because of the slightly more than second half of the book, The Bestiary, a bunch of new monsters, I think about 140 or so. Now, you've got some entries for classic monsters that just haven't appeared before, you know, the Burbalang or the Choker. Yep, there's also expanded entries for baseline creatures in the monster manual, so further breaking out into, like, sub-monsters. Yeah, like, there's a ton of drow, there's a bunch of dwergar, we get, a, you know, new kinds of demons and devils. Uh, we're not going to go through all of these monsters, but we do want to call out some of the more interesting ones, um, or ones that sort of really stuck out to us. So there's the Alip, which is, you know, it's CR5, uh, but it's a really tough CR5. It's incorporeal undead, it's got a bunch of immunities and resistances, uh, it's got pretty much only area attacks and it's got a really solid area stun effect like if i compare this to say an air elemental which is also cr5 i think this would wreck a party much more easily than a single air elemental would yeah they also come with a neat little like side panel about uh insidious lore in that their biggest threat is actually just sharing something terrible with you like some fact that they know that they're tortured by they'll just share it with you so like they'll just wreck your day even if you kill them yeah this is something that i actually like uh sort of throughout this section is that the write-ups also include things that can be very easily used as plot hooks uh you know completely aside from the stat blocks themselves uh, on the very next page is the Astral Dreadnought, which is CR 21 and looks terrifying and probably will wreck your day. Uh, Volo's Guide had a single CR 22 creature. This is the first time that we get any actual number of high-level creatures since the Monster Manual, and we get way more than they're in the Monster Manual. Yeah, so the Astral Dreadnought is a huge, beefy, 300-hit-point flyer with a bunch of condition immunities, as well as a Beholder's Anti-Magic Cone, the ability to cut the silver cords in the Astral Plane. Hey, where do you meet Astral Dreadnoughts? Uh, Only in the Astral Plane. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Likely while you're Astral Projecting. Yes. Um, And then a bunch of Legendary Resistances and Actions. Um, if it reduces you to zero, it swallows you, but not like a normal swallow. Not like, oh, I'm inside and I need to cut my way out. No, you have been Pinocchioed. You are now inside an interdimensional space where no one can get you out. In fact, the only way to really come out is, uh, I think you can plane shift out if you're lucky to have that, or you really need your friends to kill this thing. Perfect. And since it does about 80 damage per round, um, there's an excellent chance that pretty soon it starts eating you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is, uh, I think this is representative of a lot of creatures in here, in that they are high CR, uh, relatively low damage, but they have interesting challenges that are wrapped up in the specific abilities that they use against you. Mm -hmm. So these high-level monsters become kind of puzzles to solve. 
Yeah, and it's nice that it isn't solely a puzzle monster, right? It's not, okay, there's only one way to kill this, and like if we don't have fire, we can't kill the troll and, you know, screw us. You can beat this thing into submission if you're lucky enough or if you're strong enough. But it is way easier if you can, you know, handle its crazy abilities. I also like Mordenkainen's note here, which is, Astral Dreadnoughts exist because the gods are really stuck up. They don't want anyone visiting, and so they said, mm, these will keep people away. Right. Next up is the Balhanoth, which is a Shadowfell aberration that turns hope into a trap to lure people nearby. And I think the thing that really makes this one stick out to me is that it's CR 11, but it has layer actions and regional effects. I think this is the first time we've seen that on a creature this low, except maybe like a young dragon. Uh, don't hags have regional oh, effects as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, and layers, obviously. But yeah, it's it's nice that layers are becoming like a through line through these uh, these monster supplements as well. Mm-hmm. And like we mentioned before, it's got a built-in plot hook. Like the thing that it does is it creates a terrain based on the hopes of the people who are nearby to fool them into thinking that like they've finally gotten what they've always wanted yeah i love it like he it's a mirage monster basically. yeah like great that's an entire session right you know and okay it's cr11 it doesn't matter you're you're you could have a 20th level party they'll still be fooled by this thing they have to figure out the mystery first mm-hmm. they got to find this thing before they can kill it right like we said, you get the Burbalang, uh, which, you know, is a fan favorite. It's a little two, CR2 scout, but it does have at-will plane shift. So I like the idea that it just follows you. You don't like it. It actually annoys you a lot, but you can't get away from it. Yeah, and don't worry. It's a self-only plane shift, so it will not be stealing you away as a first-level adventurer and, and wrecking your party. And you can't catch it and yeah. be like, take us somewhere else. Oh, they do expand the undead listings as well, even though undead aren't a huge theme of this book uh, with the bone claw. I love the background they gave the bone claw. So like the bone claw is like a a creepy undead that it's always had like a lot of reach and it's got basically like spear hands, you know, and I've always loved those after a very bad encounter with one with a level 10 paladin back and forth edition. Mm hmm is very unpleasant <laughs> but i like that the lore of the bone claw now is it's essentially a failed lich and so it it attaches itself almost like in voldemort style um to some evil creature nearby who may not even necessarily know that they are the master of a bone claw and it starts carrying out horrible grisly murders that this person wants even if they aren't ordering it to do so so great, there's another session. Murder mystery. Why right. are people dying? Because the five-year-old is an asshole. Right. <laughs> uh, moving on to the cadaver collector, which reminds me of was it the is it the bone collector in Eberron? The corpse collector. Corpse collector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it just felt like a and it's right at CR fourteen, so it's a good level for uh, for an Eberron kind of monster as well yeah this is one of those where like the difficulty of it totally depends on the random roll because like it has bodies attached to it all it has okay it's covered in spikes and it has bodies on those spikes and it can summon the souls of those dead people but it's 1d6 specters yeah so some number of those dead people will come to uh come to its aid right so if your cr14 cadaver collector gets one all right that's fine if you if it starts rocking six specters you have more of a problem Plus also, you know, there's that paralyzing breath breath attack. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which is great because I'm assuming it paralyzes people and then just puts them on the spike. Right. <laughs> uh, we got the return of the choker, you know, an old favorite. And then clockworks. These are a collection of four medium-sized constructs that run between CR1 and CR5. They come with a great little random table of both enhancements and malfunctions. Yep, and these make for uh, great inspiration for Eberron, for Artificer, Artificers, for Tinker Gnomes. Yeah, my only the only thing I don't like about them is that there aren't any rules for how you could create these things, even though it says that like these are things that someone might create. Yeah. I think that's relatively easy to, you know, homebrew though. Because again, they're all relatively low level. Right. I like the selection of Deathlocks. You've got the Deathlock, the Deathlock Mastermind, the Deathlock White. Um, low level to medium level. Uh, they're Undead Spellcasters, uh, which sort of gives a, a nice, um, a different kind of challenge to that level of Undead. Because usually you're just sort of like fighting zombies uh, or skeletons. Yeah, I, I like that this explains what happens to your warlock if you don't live up to your pact. <laughs> and that also uh, makes them really customizable because there's a nice little sidebar with patron-specific spells that you can swap out depending on well, which patron they pissed off. Right. Um, now we get to the demon section, which is a big section. Yeah, it better be, given how much uh, how much information they had about the Blood War. Right. So there's plenty of low-level demons that are really useful for those new spells that summon demons. Right. <laughs> uh, there aren't a ton uh, of them, though, where you're like, oh, yeah, those demons. I know those demons. Yeah, they seem to be mostly just collections of the same old syllables rearranged. Yeah. Um, with some demonic-looking art and a CR assigned. The first like high level demon that you get to is the Malidius, which is it's huge. Um, it's CR twenty one. I am looking at it though, and at first glance, like the damage that it puts out and the spells that it can cast seem pretty lackluster. Like I would not be worried at like you know as a, like a fifteenth level party taking this thing on. Right. It, it has some like stuff in its pocket, but it shouldn't be anything that is difficult to handle. Even though it does have legendary actions. But like, okay, it can cast a spell as a legendary action. Um, telekinesis. Right. However, and, and this is, I don't know if this is a failing of the D&D um, challenge rating system or if it's a failing of like how this, this book is written. Um, but if you just two pages later, there's a CR 18 Sibriax, which to me seems much more terrifying than the Molly Deus. It has an at will hold monster. And three times per day you can use feeble mind. So like uh that's what on average what probably one point five of members of the party who are now are gonna have uh, an intelligence of one for the rest of the fight, unless someone happens to have greater restoration prepped. Uh and then, you know, at will hold monster. It doesn't hit that hard, but great, all of those are gonna be crits. Yeah, I mean it also has an exhaustion attack. Yeah. Which it which scales super fast. Yeah, and it's AOE. It's an yeah, AOE it's an exhaustion. AOE attack. exhaustion, which like <laughs> fighting when you're exhausted three levels is impossible. Fighting so, when you're exhausted two levels already sucks. Right. So it is um it is it is a very dangerous monster, though it does have low hit points. It's only 150 hit points. Mm-hmm. Which means it's um 
instantly subject to power word kill. <laughs> I do love, though, that the next page has random tables for when it uses that exhaustion attack, like what happens? Why are you exhausted? Yeah. Uh, you grow feathered wings from your back. You, get, you gain a f- flying speed, although you're exhausted because your body's not supposed to do that. Your head doubles in size. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you grow a whip-like tail, which you can use as a whip. <laughs> The target swells, tripling its weight. (laughs) Then a few pages later, we get one of the two, like, uh, double-page art pieces in the book. And this one is uh, Zugmoy with a looming Jouiblex, and it is beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really impressive. I mean, it's it's demonic. You know, so adjust your expectations accordingly but like it is a is a really neat piece of artwork and the the demon lord in the background is so very subtle but then once you see it you're like oh yeah you can't unsee it (laughs) yeah i mean should we just talk about the art in the book now uh yeah i mean i would say the art on the whole is pretty good yeah i agree there's one other like double page uh it's like uh i'm guessing it seems like a ranger who's like fighting a horde of undead in the shadow fell yeah it's like really nicely lit yep um yeah, and, and overall, it's it's well in line with what you would expect for 5th edition art. Um, there is one section that is an absolute travesty, and it's the halfling section. Mm-hmm. Um, the art is not in keeping with the rest of the art style of the book. Um, maybe that is intentional as sort of Morden Kanan's inside joke, um, but it's very cartoony. Um, it looks like concept art for Fortnite. Um, it is... It's, I think it's it's ugly, but that's me. It makes me wonder if those if that chapter was put together like separately, and then they decided, okay, how, I think we have the page count for this, or it's not going to go in a different book. How do we shoehorn it in? Yeah, you know, we lampshade that it's different, but then the art was like the art direction had already gone in a different direction. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the story is. I mean, I would I would like to give them credit for doing it purposely. Um, but they don't really lampshade that the art is different, so I don't know. Yeah. All right, then we get the Demon Lords. Now, for those of you who own Rage of Demons, um, that statted out quite a few Demon Lords. I think all of these Demon Lords that are here in this book, which unfortunately means that while at first glance it seems like you're getting a ton more high CR creatures, um, you're getting fewer than you think. Now, these are updated, but I... It does seem at first glance that the versions in this book are just slightly weaker versions of the ones in Rage of Demons, but but like not enough to really be that functionally different. Like a die or two less on, on a weapon attack and maybe like 20 fewer HP. That's not really going to make it a difference in the grand scheme of things. Right. So first off, there's Baphomet. He's CR 23. He's a big bruiser, and he's got frightful presence. And that is exactly what he does. He hits very hard, and he hits a lot. Um, So also a couple interesting ones. Um, There's Demogorgon, um, of course, from Stranger Things fame now, uh, has unhealable tentacle attacks, an at-will dominate, and its lair induces madness. He's also CR 26, which is as high as you get in this book. Yep. Uh, which is the same CR as your favorite, Orcus. Yeah, he has a lair action power word kill. 
He's got at will animate dead. He can just, you know, go ahead and create 500, up to 500 hit points of undead, which as a GM, you're like, wait, I can just pick them? Like any amount of 500 hit points of undead? Yeah. Okay. Um, he does not have his traditional death touch ability. Yeah. His wand can cast power word kill a couple times. He can cast finger of death, but you know, the old like, ha, Orcus hits you with his wand and you crumble to dust. Like, there's not even any version of that, which disappoints me a bit. Yeah. Yeah, so overall, I think the, the demon lords are all pretty flavorful. Like, some of them are, you know, kind of more magically inclined. Some of them are more tricky. Some of them have, like, that chaos or mind-bending. Um, and, like, Baphomet and Yanagu, they're just bruisers, right? Yeah, um, Jubilex, I think, actually is it probably punches above his weight. Like, he's in ooze, and so... Oh, so he's got all the immunities. Yeah, yeah. exactly. He's got regen. He permanently damages your armor, even though he's listed as CR-23. Right. Uh, then we move on to devils, which are which are new, right? These there's no reprinting for these, so we get a handful of lesser devils as well as um, the Abishai, which are the dragons, the dragon devils who serve Tiamat. Um, it briefly mentions that Tiamat's castle is on Avernus, the first layer of the nine hells, just hanging out, and uh, no one bothers her. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just like neither demons nor devils really go near her but you know she's got to have servants and uh, i guess they got to be devils and but... they got to be dragons yep there's one for each color and they are their power increases the same way that the chromatic dragons do right white at the bottom red on the top right now the arch devils unlike the demon lords where pretty much all of them are statted out you know all the way on up to demogorgon uh, you do not get stat blocks for the vast majority of the rulers of the Nine Hells. The only one you get is Zariel. Yes, but you do get some of the name devils from the story of the Blood War. Right. Baal, Garion, Moloch. So these are actually, interestingly, weaker, at least in terms of challenge rating, than the Demon Lords. They run from CR 16 up to CR 22 and then Zariel CR 26. Which I think makes a lot of sense. Given the lore of the of the Blood War, the devil should be weaker as individuals, right? Because the strength of the devil is their uh, strategy, their adherence to law, their intentedness, whereas the strength of the demons is that they are just like uncontrollable forces of chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, we do have Zariel, who's CR 26. She's got at-will fireball three times a day. She's got blade barrier. She can pump out a lot of fire damage. I think every hit, her sword does an extra 88 fire. However. Yeah, she's got a big weakness, which is she does a lot of fire damage. <laughs> yeah. It's like the easiest thing to get resistance and or immunity to. And like a ring of fire elemental command. Uh, I think I can take out Zariel with like maybe my bare hands we get some new drow uh, the one that's the most interesting uh, the high level ones like the matron mother um, it really sort of points out why it is that everyone's terrified of them and how they can hold their own against demons that they summon uh, she's CR 20 yeah there's also a drow inquisitor which is a CR 14 monster which I was naturally drawn to because of the word Inquisitor, um, but I do, I do think gives you a good baseline for what that type of 
40k kind of inquisitor would look like in D&D. Mm -hmm. A bunch of Dwergar, mostly low level. Um, four different Eladrin, one for each season. And then we get a section on elementals. Two types, though. You get Elder Elementals, which are crazy things like the Leviathan and the Phoenix and the Elder Tempest. The v Leviathan looks really cool. Although it actually doesn't do that much damage on its own, although it can cast a tidal wave approximately two times a minute. So, yeah, so <laughs> it's there to wreck coastal cities and fleets. It's not supposed to punch you. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's again, in keeping with uh, the concept of Leviathan. Um, it's also got one of the coolest pieces of art in here. It's this sort of like spectral wave form of, of Leviathan, like over, overlooking a shipwreck. Uh, and then you get elemental myrmidons, which are actually just CR7 versions of the old um, elementals. They're fine. Right for that, though, we get the coolest monster in this entire book. The GIF. Or should I say the GIF? Yeah, because it's, it's graphical. Right. <laughs> Duh. So the GIF is a seven-foot-tall hippopotamus-headed humanoid in military attire carrying a blunderbuss i have no ideas what these came from like no clue what the source of this is but it is my favorite thing in this entire book yeah i have absolutely no idea and um, we're not going to look it up because i kind of love not knowing also they have an action called fragmentation grenade yeah <laughs> <laughs> they only get one per day <laughs> uh, but they do have gunpowder by the keg as a side note in case you were looking uh, to find out what happens if you blow up a barrel of gunpowder. 76 damage on a failed save. These definitely feel like the allies that you hate to have in a campaign. Like, oh, we're working with the GIF. Okay, and they're lawful neutral as well. So I'm sure they have random arcane procedures that they must follow to the letter. Right. Also, I like that they neglect, they reject magic entirely. They say it has no honor. I fireball them. We get the gray render. I like to see them back again. Um, I like that they are positioned as essentially big domesticated creatures, even though they're like, you know, giant bipedal rhinoceroses that tear things apart with their bare hands. Yeah, they kind of look more like a giant badger, I guess, but with no hair. Anyway, I don't know what a badger looks like with no hair, Shane. Why well, do you? That's a good point. And I'm super, super happy to see the Marut. It is CR 25, which means it is the only high-level creature in here that isn't, like, magical, like, like, like overtly magical, like a demon or a devil. So right? for people who don't know all of the Modrins by heart, <laughs> <laughs> what is the Marut? <laughs> uh, sometimes they've been called inevitables. Uh, the Marut uh, enforces contracts. Um, the letter of contracts. If you are a contract breaker, no matter the reason, a Marut may show up and basically force you to fulfill uh, your duty. Right. Um, it's CR25. It can definitely force you to do that at will plane shift. Uh, I love that the, the stat block basically did what I did with uh, Primus in the Morning Glory campaign without knowing that they were going to do this, which is uh, the Marut doesn't miss with an attack it just hits you and it does a set amount of damage Yeah, it just does 60 damage <laughs> there are no dice <laughs> it knows what's going to happen it's a creature of pure law right 
Same thing, actually, with its uh, area attack. Yeah, you just all eat 45 Radiant. Right, and you can uh, you can make a saving throw to prevent the stun, but you're going to take the damage. Speaking of beings made of pure something, the Nightwalker, we get it back. We don't get the other variants, like uh, with the, the Nightcrawler, um, but the Nightwalker is a giant shadow being on the Shadowfell. Then we get the return of the Sorrowsworn, which are a... Uh collection of monsters from the Shadowfell that sort of embody uh, would you say like negative emotion yeah I don't remember if that's the way they were characterized in 4th edition um, but I like this version of them certainly uh, they're they're named after negative emotions there's the angry and the lonely and we get star spawn uh, I only really mention them though because there's the larva mage which is but the worm that walks, uh, Kios, uh, I think, uh, you know, it's the wizard made of maggots. You're welcome. Disgusting. Uh, there's also a handful of variant creatures then. Um, there's variant ogres, variant trolls, and variant yugoloths. And there are a few appendices. It sorts the creatures in this book by terrain uh, and by challenge rating and by creature type. So that's the entire book. From the read that we did over it, there were a couple of instances where it seems like there was an error. The Shadarkai are specifically missing from the creature index at the beginning, mm -hmm, which so. led me to believe that they were mentioned as a PC race, but not as an NPC race. You know, in one or two places I saw um, a typo. I think in the Gith section, it's, the one section says Gith Yankee instead of Gith Zerai, which is extremely confusing until you figure out what it was actually supposed to say. Right. Uh, but honestly, this seems like quite clean copy. I will say, so this is a book about, you know, planar enemies. Uh, Sigil is mentioned multiple times. Uh, it's just sort of as like a thing that obviously exists. And of course, you know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are multiple sidebars or even just straight up in the text where it says, okay, on Greyhawk, here's how this is different. Right. Uh, in Dragonlance, if you're playing there, here's how this is different. Yep. In Forgotten Realms, mm -hmm. there is no mention of Eberron. I wonder if that is a, an intentional thing because Eberron is not going to be brought forth in the 5th edition, which is a likely outcome. Or if that is just because Morden Kanan as a character has not canonically been part of Eberron. Ah, okay. So there is one sidebar, one little like Morden Kanan note in the gnome section where he says, I have been to many different places and many different worlds, and I have never seen a gnome nation. And I was like, what about Zalargo? Yeah. <laughs> You've obviously never been to Eberron. Wait, wait, is this purposeful? Have you have you ruled out Eberron? Right. Like, or... or to your point, is it them saying, hey, Mordenkainen has never been to Eberron? Yeah. I, I mean, because Eberron is sort of um, a little bit of the odd man out in the D&D &D kind of history because it was never really part of the same multiverse, right? right? Like, it has its own collection of planes. It has its own, like, creation story. It's sort of a standalone world, if you will, that never really had a crossover to other D&D &D settings. Although... Dark Sun is the same way, right? Like, it doesn't really connect to the rest of the multiverse. Like, there's the gray and there's the black and that's it. Mm -hmm. But I'm pretty sure I saw one reference in here where, like, someone is having visions of, like, a blood red sun in the sky and, like, um, castles falling into silt. 
And I was like, well, that's Dark Sun. And you may have picked up on a Birthright reference. Yeah, that's true. The the Five Peaks reference might have been Birthright. The the Athos reference might have been there. Um, again, don't know that Morton Kanan ever visited Birthright. But Dark Sun could also be the future of any world in D&D. Right. So Dark Sun is kind of a bad example anyway. I mean, it could be the future of our world. You're not wrong. The way we're going. <laughs> But yeah, I I hear you. Um, there are other settings I would have liked to have had included in here, if only to recognize that they still exist. Yes. Now, this is not a knock against this book whatsoever, just wherever on fanboys. So. Right. Okay. So the verdict you've been waiting for, Shane, should people buy this book? If you're going to DM, absolutely. I think no brainer. Um, this is the book that offers the least to players of all of the supplements thus far. It doesn't have a full class. It barely has new races. Um, and many of those new races are available via Unearthed Arcana as is. Right. Or they are reprinted races from previous books. Mm-hmm. So you don't get much if you're a player, which I think is great. <laughs> like... <laughs> finally players don't have to buy every book and only use like a few pages right like it's great that this book is for dms and if you're a dm you should buy it um specifically i like the distribution of monsters like there are a few low level monsters lower cr monsters but there it skews much more towards the middle and higher range which has been sort of a gap in the dnd books previously so i'm i think it solves or it fills a necessary need I definitely agree with that. There is a need. When I was running the Morning Glory campaign, once you guys were level 15 or so, I had to just keep reskinning the same high-level monsters mm-hmm. or like piecing them together from like bits here and there. Right. Because there just wasn't anything to use. Now there are a lot of high-level monsters and you're not going to be able to fit them all in your campaign. <laughs> <laughs> what not? All of them. All of them at the same time. Right. <laughs> Nine uh, demon lords? Great. Right. There's six of you. It's fair. <laughs> Put them in an arena. Let's go. Back to back. <laughs> Yeah, I think my gut reaction was, yeah, you should get this book because of the high-level monsters. To your point about the mid-level monsters, I think that's that's a great thing to keep in mind. One of our complaints has been, okay, you can fight against Drow when you're level 7. But after that, you can't fight against Drow or you have to like build Drow NPCs or something because they don't scale up. Mm-hmm. And now, now they do. You've right. got CR20 Drow that you can fight. Right. Um, and in the same way, you're also getting lower level ones as well. It's not just scaling up. Mm-hmm. So you can send your party against the same kind or similar enemies at multiple levels, which is very nice. Yep. I do think you need to keep in mind that if you have if you already own Rage of Demons, then mm, eight or nine of the really big solid stat blocks in here are going to be things that you all pretty much already have. I think that's fine, though because of all the other stat blocks that you're getting. And even if you're not particularly interested in devils or demons, even if you're not fighting a, a guy, if you're not running a planar campaign, it's important to note that it's just so much easier to create new high-level monsters when you have multiple data points about what they should look like. Because even if you don't reflavor any of these, even if you want to build your own, which is certainly a lot of fun, you can now at least 
take a little bit from here, take a little bit from there. You've got 17 data points as opposed to four. Yeah, so actually let's talk about that because I think we were both a little surprised at what these high-level high stat blocks look like. Uh, certainly, I think Orcus at 26 is more difficult than the Tarask at 30. Yeah, I agree. You know, um, the Tarask has immunities or like it's a puzzle monster right? right but i think our first thing was like uh hey you can ask this boss in. <laughs> yeah um but but on that subject like i was a little bit surprised at the damage output for many of the monsters mm -hmm. in that higher level tier like the 18 plus tier like it seems very low um and i i've seen a little bit of critique online people have compared it to the um guidelines provided in the dmg and the damage is lower than the dmg provides for yeah, like the Leviathan, um, I think its slam attack does 1d10 plus 9 and 1d10 acid. Like 2d10 plus 9, like that is, like a high-level barbarian could easily be doing that. Yeah, and also like uh, many characters are going to resist all or some of that damage. So mm -hmm. the actual impact to you is going to be kind of laughable, right? Like you can't have high-level monsters that take 10 rounds to kill you. Um, that doesn't make any sense. That said, that has been balanced in some of these monsters with devastating saver suck spells. Like, and, and the way to make them dangerous is that, like, hey, you just get banished. And if you fail that save, like, your fight is over. One of you is gone. Uh, next. Yeah, um, maybe you have the plane shift spell so you can get back here. Maybe, but uh, I'm probably not banishing the wizard. Yeah, so the wizard gets to use the first plane shift to get to the barbarian <laughs> and the second one to get it back. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are an impressive number of lair actions here. I think the key seems to be that you need to play these monsters intelligently and you need to play them with their full range of abilities. Mm -hmm. Um a lot of the demon lords, it's like, oh, okay, that seems a bit lackluster when you actually get there. But you need to have already fought your way to their domain in the first place. And I'll, I think every single one says, hey, any humanoid that spends an hour within one mile of the lair goes insane. Right. <laughs> yeah, there's that's another piece of this that is not very well accounted for in D&D across the board is what type of magic items are they expecting you to have when you face them, mm -hmm. right? Uh, for the most part, there's nothing that's just going to invalidate an enemy. Um, but, you know, even even the dumber monsters, things like um, Baphomet, right, who is really just a Garistro on steroids, like, he can drop Maze three times per day, which means you're going to be making three intelligence saves in order to just know where you are. Now, granted, the wizard is probably not going to worry about that. But also, the wizard is the one who's going to get killed by Baphomet. <laughs> <laughs> so you run into this situation of like, even if their damage output is low, they're very tricky in the way that they actually play tactically, um, which I I think is a good decision because I don't think fighting your way to a demon lord only to have the demon lord one-shot you is a very rewarding play experience at level 19. Um that said, I also don't think it's fun to fight your way to Zariel and, you know, alpha strike her to the point where, okay, cool. Like, she didn't even really get a meaningful action in that fight. We just took out a demon lord or a, an archdevil in no time. Or it turns out that you're playing a forge cleric and you're level 17, and so you're immune to fire. Well, that's a big problem. Uh, oh, I guess I'll just heal everyone. Yeah. 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 
it does sort of boil down to the the age old issue of high level D and D, which is having experience in running these creatures. Mm-hmm. You know, like a three times per day ability is almost the same as an at will ability because mm-hmm. how many rounds are you actually going to be fighting, and how many rounds are you going to take your whole action to do that thing? Right, three times per day feeble mind. Great, I don't need it any more than that whatsoever. Right. So I don't know, maybe practice with these. Um, or it, it is uh, another like point in the column of work your way up to high level D&D. Mm-hmm. You know, like have people actually play all the way up so that you have experience in monsters with many, many more abilities. Yep. Um, and, and it also lends itself to building an adventure out of understanding the threat so that you can plan for it, mm-hmm. right? Um which is great. I mean, I, I do think that's a good direction for D&D. I think it's been the traditional direction for D&D. All right. So I think we agree. This is a good addition to your bookshelf. A double buy. A double buy for DMs. Yes. Uh, for players, uh, if you're completist, yeah, sure. Uh, the lore is interesting enough, but it's not anything you absolutely need. Yeah. And the pictures are pretty to look at. Yeah. If you're a player interested in this book, become a DM. Oh, please do. I know a podcast you could listen to. It might help you. <laughs> Not ours. <laughs> Anything but ours. All right. Let's get out of here. Uh, before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And Ishan, we have a Patreon. And we would like to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week and to keep doing these reviews every single time a book comes out. Once a year. (laughs) Hey, we're kind of branching out (laughs) beyond 5th edition. Right, that's true. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. So next week, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled uh, programming. What do we have planned? We'll be talking about building strongholds and bases. And in the character creation forge, we're building Edward Elric. Well, that's it for episode 147 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.